This is the I Read Comic Books podcast, a special mini-sode today for you about the subject of Grant Morrison. I'm Kara Shamborski, and I'm here with Paul Jaisley. Hello. Who is trying to convince me that Grant Morrison is not a terrible writer. <laughs> I, I, I uh, yeah, uh, it's, this is interesting because I... I was thinking about this before we record. I've always said Grant Morrison is my favorite comic book writer, but maybe that's not exactly true. I think he's the writer whose work I revisit the most often, which might be sort of a backhanded compliment since it requires rereading to kind of grasp a lot of his ideas. But I find that really interesting. So I was I was kind of surprised when you had the exact opposite reaction and said that you didn't like his work at all. So, he, yeah. Okay, so backstory, <laughs> picture this. It is... 2009 2008 2009 i'm in college i am super into dc comics i am a college student so i don't have a lot of money to throw around but i'm like religiously buying their event books so i can keep abreast of things and i stayed with them through all of the infinite crisis stuff and the countdown, the 52 stuff and the countdown stuff. And then there's Final Crisis. Mm-hmm. And Grant Morrison is writing this huge event book that I bought everything for and understood none of. And I was so <laughs> frustrated and full of rage. Sure. And I just, and, and it's not just that I didn't understand what was happening. It was also stuff like taking Wonder Woman and other really cool female characters and turning them into like soldiers of apocalypse. And I was just so angry with that choice. The combination of me being frustrated by what was going on and being frustrated that I spent a lot of money trying to find out what was going on. It's just like, it was just this toxic hurricane. And ever since then, I have just had this irrational loathing for Grant Morrison's work, which I realize is unjustified. So, Um, well, yeah, I I think it's that's a valid reaction, obviously, because I had a somewhat similar experience where I had read Grant Morrison's JLA book, his Justice League book they did in the late 90s when it was coming out. But that was sort of my that's like 97, I think that was sort of my last gasp as a devoted superhero comic book reader at the time. Um, and then, you know, once I graduated high school, shortly after that, I kind of put it away for a while. My reintroduction to reading regular monthly superhero comics was Final Crisis and uh, Graham Morrison's run on Batman. I found out that he was writing Batman. I was like, well, I'm interested in that. And I'm in the comic shop for the first time in a decade. And I see Final Crisis. I go, that looks interesting. And I had a similar reaction where I understood very little of Final Crisis because I hadn't read DC Comics in a decade. I don't but, think it mattered. You just—it was baffling, <laughs> even for those of us who had. I had a DC. My parents were kind enough to buy me a DC Comics encyclopedia mm-hmm. when I was a teenager because I really wanted to understand what was going on in these worlds. And superhero yeah. comics makes it really hard to do that <laughs> unless you're a devoted researcher nerd like me. You're gonna miss stuff. So even yeah. with this like minor league research background in DC Comics for me, <laughs> I did not understand Final Crisis. So I think you're fine. Well, that's what I'm surprised because you said you have a research of analytic research oriented approach to it. And I did, too. I loved getting an issue of Final Crisis, reading it and then going online and reading fan theories or reading annotations and seeing references and doing a lot of background research. And that became part of the reading experience for me. And that's kind of what I've carried through when I've read all of the other Grant Morrison stuff that I've read since then, when he became my favorite comic book writer. That, to me, is part of the experience is like. I don't think his work is purposefully confusing. I just think it's written in a way that encourages 
a a different way of reading and approaching comics, which I appreciate. But obviously, your mileage may vary. Right. I so I just so I disagree with you. And let me tell our listeners. We <laughs> so for this episode, we read a bunch of Morrison stuff. So which you very kindly put together a recommendation list, so we could have a range yeah. of things to talk about in terms of like style, like type of book, whether it was part of an ongoing or a shorter mm-hmm. run, whether it was creator owned, whether it was uh, a franchise character or not. So we read All-Star Superman, Batman Gothic, JLA Volume 1, Nameless, and We Three. Right, right. And that is the order in which I read them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So... Uh, so you're saying that you like Morrison because his work gives you a lot to unpack and a lot to think about and yeah. a lot to kind of dig into and maybe that not having things spelled out for you is appealing as as a reader. And yeah. for me, like having been like I've read some of his work previous to this, obviously Final Crisis um, that wonder woman graphic novel he did a couple years ago uh things like that and then reading a chunk of his material all at once kind of solidified for me what about him that i don't like okay and i think that you like him for the reason i don't like him (laughs) right (laughs) because so so for me when i'm reading his works my general impression is that he's kind of talking above me it's not even like he's Um, talking down to me he's talking mm -hmm. above me he's like i am so much smarter than you and i'm gonna prove that on every single panel of this book and i don't think that's his intent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's how it reads to me and like i'm sure some of my personal opinion is clouding this (laughs) but like for the consistently in his books i felt like i was missing stuff Mm-hmm. And that he wanted me to miss stuff to like prove how clever he was being. Okay, I, I, and that is, I think, a very common reaction to his work. And I, as a Grant Morrison apologist, and I will say there are things he's done that don't work for me. But by and large, I like most of the stuff I've read by him. I, I think that reaction that people have is a sort of projection that people have. They want to assume that he is being obtuse or purposely clever or disguising stuff to confuse readers. And I I think instead, my charitable reading of Grant Morrison is that he is trying to use the comic book medium to make the reader think in a different way. And I I think the stuff that I selected for us to read kind of covers a gamut where you have Gothic, the Batman story from 1990, you have the JLA stuff from the late 90s, and then there's a marked shift in his writing style to stuff like We Three and Nameless. He writes a very different style, and I think that's what... I like about him is he's trying to use the comic book medium in different ways in those different works. I definitely got that feeling for Nameless. Nameless is the creator-owned work he did for Image a few years ago. Yeah. And that one, so so I want to talk about Nameless, but I want to talk about All-Star Superman first because I actually have a problem with both of them that is the same, which you wouldn't think because they're two very different books. (laughs) Very different. (laughs) (laughs) so in all-star superman the basic gist of it is lex luthor has a convoluted scheme where superman gets poisoned by overexposure to the sun and he's dying 
So it's a look at what would Superman do if he knew that he was dying. Mm -hmm. And Morrison does a lot of uh, revisiting and reexamining a lot of Superman uh, elements, whether that's actual elements like the bottled city of Candor or philosophical elements like what does it mean to be a hero Mm -hmm. that are part of the whole decades long Superman mythos. And as I was reading it, I felt like I like as things were happening, I was like, oh, yeah, and then that happened and then that happened. And I'm, I'm following this story. And when I got to the end, I realized I had not been following the story at all. And it was <laughs> okay. like the second I closed the book, I was like, OK, and we're done. But the thing that that has stuck with me since reading it is I'm really uncomfortable with the way that he wrote Lois Lane. And then I realized as I was continuing to read his works, I'm just generally uncomfortable with the way he writes women. Mm-hmm. Be- mm-hmm. There seemed to be like the the casual misogyny that you see where it it seems fine, but actually there's kind of a sinister undercurrent to it. So, I th- so for example, uh, Lois Lane... In this book, I thought they were going a really interesting direction at first because part of this is, you know, Superman reveals that he and Clark Kent are one and the same mm-hmm. and takes Lois to his Fortress of Solitude. And she, you like see her internal monologue for a while where she's freaking out at how creepy it is that this guy has been lying to her for the entire time that he's known her. Right. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, she's going to like we're finally seeing this kind of from Lois's point of view and how this is actually a genuinely creepy situation. Mm-hmm. And then like a few panels later, it was Superman's giving her this like birthday present of wearing a super suit to have his powers for a day. And I'm like, cool. Awesome. She's going to have his powers. She's going to see what it's like to be him. But no, almost immediately two other strong dudes show up. And then the three strong dudes argue and fight over who is going to get to spend the day with superpowered Lois Lane. Right. And right. I'm like, I'm like, really? You started doing such an interesting direction and you went right back to let's have the boys fight over who's going to take the girl to the dance? Are you serious? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I will fully admit that as a, you know, a straight white male in his mid 30s, a lot of that stuff I don't see right away or I don't notice. And I can admit that. But rereading this book, um, because I try to read this book on a on like an annual basis because it's one of my favorite comic books. It becomes that stuff becomes more noticeably every time I reread it, and and not in a defense of that because I do think that's a very odd story choice. In this book, Morrison's doing something that he does a lot in his Batman run, his more recent Batman run, where he's consciously going back and referencing Silver Age stories, and those Silver Age stories from the fifties and sixties are misogynistic, sort of you know inherently in a weird way. And I think that that comes through, but it's strange that Morrison doesn't acknowledge that in the story itself. It's it's obvious that he's referencing an old story from Action Comics from the 50s where that is the plot, where Samson and Atlas show up and try to steal Lois Lane from Superman. But that story in the 50s doesn't play very well in the early 2000s when this book is coming out. So I, I can definitely see that criticism. And it is more noticeable every time I reread the book. And I'm not defending it. I'm just saying I think that's where that story comes from. It is unfortunate that Morrison is blind to that, not m- mentioning that. Right. And and I totally got that. Like, when I was reading this, I was like, wait, am I reading a Silver Age comic? Right. But I feel like it's too easy to say, oh, but I'm doing an homage to this older thing. It's like, great, do Definitely. your homage. But 
don't just copy it. Do something new with it. It's a mm-hmm. new story. Instead of just lifting this storyline, like have the plot twist of the guys realize that what they're doing is idiotic and that Lois is a person or like plot twist while the guys are busy fighting over her Lois like realizes someone is in trouble goes to save them and then like ends up out on a date with a cute girl barista like do something (laughs) that's not what we're expecting from this like 50s nonsense yeah no I I think that that's interesting and and as a, as a short sort of caveat or aside right here, I, I recognize that that isn't a lot of Morrison's writing. I think he might recognize that on a personal level. And I think there are examples in his writing that I think he does write very, very well-developed, strong female characters. His Doom Patrol run, I think that's a large chunk of it, is his ability to write a character like Crazy Jane in a very sympathetic, um, well-rounded way. When he's doing sort of superhero pastiches, it might be... a an inherent bias that he's writing with that that stuff doesn't get um, brought up enough. But anyway, mm-hmm. there there were some things in this book that I found interesting that I wanted to see more of that I was surprised there wasn't more of. Mm-hmm. So there was this whole Superman from the future idea, like Superman during his as his journey through these twelve issues progresses, he encounters versions of himself from the future but he doesn't know that they're him from the future (laughs) or they're his uh descendants and things like that and by the time i got to the end of the story i was just left wondering why more wasn't done with them or if i had like i felt like i missed some crucial part (laughs) that bringing these future supermen in to see superman for a book that was like so weighty in its topics covered it just felt like they were there to be like kind of a gimmick and that Mm -hmm. more time should have been spent on them with what morrison was trying to do yeah i think what's interesting about this book and i wanted to recommend this book to you because i know you and i've talked about superman we know i know you're a big superman fan we share a, a shared appreciation for the character and i really like this superman story and i think I have, but I hesitate to recommend it to people that aren't Superman fans because I think it is so referential to the past Superman stories and things about Superman that I, I think deep fans appreciate. But the structure of the story is one where I think each issue kind of stands on its own. So I think that issue that you're referencing when you have the future Superman is the story where Superman, it's revealed at the end of that that issue, that chapter, that Superman did was one of those future Superman or one of those characters, the unknown Superman with the you know, the mummy wrapping around his head. He was mm-hmm. going back to see his father one last time because he knew his father was dying that day. So that that story and the overarching theme of All-Star Superman is about the idea of lineage. So just the idea that Superman will exist in, you know, the year 85,000, that is intriguing to Morrison. Whether or not he explores the idea, I think him just introducing that speaks to the theme of the book in a way. And then the book, again, this is very spoiler-heavy if you hadn't read All-Star Superman, but... Um, I would argue that for most of Morrison's work, it's the way the story is told is more important than what happens in the story. Um, and you realize at the end of the book, Superman had given the formula he created to give to Lois Lane. He gives that to Leo Quintum, the scientist, to create a race of Superman in the future. Right? So it's like that that future hasn't happened Oh, is happened that what yet. happened? That's what happens at the end. That's the last page that, when you that see That completely the went over my head. Oh, okay. 
We got to reread it. See? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for letting me know what I was reading because I was confused. Um, The other thing that stuck out to me, which I thought was kind of funny, was how whiny Luthor was the whole time. Great. I I really liked Morrison's take on Lex Luthor. Like he's He's, such a whiny brat and he's an overgrown spoiled child with a lot of money and he's basically like... But I would I would be everything if Superman wasn't here. And you're just yeah. like, no, dude, like, <laughs> get over yourself. But he's just so, so consumed by this idea that he just wants to, like, whinge about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just, he's, um, he has no, he's talking about what he could achieve or what humanity could achieve without Superman. But all he does is whine about what he could do without doing anything, you know? So there is a popular theory about this book that the character Leo Quintum, who is this sort of, you know, uh, a less uh, creepy Elon Musk type character who is like this scientist uh, who is, you know, lives on the moon on a base. And he's like, you know, he communicates with Superman a lot. The the theory is that that character is actually um, either a descendant of Lex Luthor or Lex Luthor himself that traveled back in time to save Superman. Oh. So I think, and that's something that I never got every time I read the book, but that's all the fan theory that I've read. And I think that speaks to one of the things I really like about Graham Morrison is that I don't think Graham Morrison really cares what is true to the story or what you think is happens in the story or what he thinks happens in the story. It's like, if that is an idea that has the story make sense to you, then it's valid. So I think that's part of the thing about what I said about him trying to make the reader think in a different way. And I, I think he's giving you a bunch of material and a bunch of clues and whatever sort of sense you make out of it is just as valid as what he intended when he wrote it. Which is a perfect segue to the next book <laughs> I wanted to talk about, which Great. is Nameless. So Nameless is completely different from All-Star Superman in every conceivable way. <laughs> it's creator-owned. It is dark and gory and twisted and unsettling and the reason why i kind of put this in the same category as all-star superman is again morrison's approach to women Hmm. because so this is a book where i i it's a nice segue from what you were just saying because this is a book where morrison is kind of really upfront about this being different and non-linear and more about a feeling yeah or an impression as opposed to the plot and so I like read the whole thing. It creeped me the hell out. We can we can get into it a little <laughs> bit. But so I, I was reading the trade version with all these really helpful author notes and back matter yeah. where Morrison was explaining some of the references that he put in and his general thesis and his general thesis for this book is that the book is a call for women to rise up and claim their destinies as the true hero of the world. And like, what? Like, that is absolutely not what I got out of this book because there's like, yeah, there's a few women, but the story is definitely based around a dude. Mm -hmm. And like really, 
like unsettling things happen to the women. And so I'm looking at his thesis that this is my female empowerment story. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, who the fuck gave this guy Wonder Woman to write? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so, and like, so I was telling you before we started recording, I wrote notes about these books as I was reading them so I could remember my details. And my first note for Nameless is, I have an idea. How about we burn this book to the ground? <laughs> <laughs> How do I scrub this from my brain? <laughs> this is a really interesting book because so this is a book he did shortly after leaving DC you know after he did his he he did his big Superman story with all-star Superman and he did action comics for a while in the new 52 uh, which is actually really great take another great take on Superman he did his epic seven-year Batman run he did that one Roman graphic novel which actually I, I thought was pretty underwhelming and disappointing and then he leaves DC and he goes to Image and he does Nameless. And I was really excited for it because I'm like, oh, finally, he's doing something that's not DC-oriented. And he's doing it with Chris Burnham, who's a fantastic artist. And an artist, I think, gets Grant Morrison and can do Morrisonian meta-narrative in a really great way, artistically. And the the main selling point for the book was that Chris Burnham said, this is Morrison doing a straight-up horror story. And after reading the book, I realized, I don't think Grant Morrison actually likes horror stories um, but it's interesting because I was so excited for this book when it came out and I was reading it month to month and it did not work for me. I did not like it at all. When I sat down to reread it for this podcast, I read it in the tr- collected trade edition and I really liked it. Granted, it's gratuitous at times. It's hyper violent in a way that's unsettling at times. But I understood the structure a lot better the second time around and I could see that Morrison is trying to do that David Lynch thing where he's making a story that has no linear narrative but functions on dream logic to make the the reader not have a not have a solid through line of 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 events chronologically but put things together thematically as they read the book. So right? yeah and so so Nameless starts out as kind of a a horror story like space adventure story something's going wrong we have to send out a team of scientists to investigate it things start going wrong and you start getting some background on one of the characters that he was involved in this kind of occult raid situation which also went wrong and the two storylines start merging (laughs) more and more the closer you get to the end and Again, at the in the trade and the end notes, Morrison is very upfront about this being, like you said, kind of a, a dream logic thing, more mm-hmm. about an unsettling feeling. And there's a lot of magic going on, a lot of divine forces being referenced, but again, in a really horrifying way. And while reading it, I, I felt uncomfortable reading it. Again, this is like late at night like i'm 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 reading this like in the dark maybe not the best plan and it really felt like i was maybe unleashing occult forces just by reading it (laughs) and i did not like that feeling like i ended this book and wanted to scrub my brain because it felt like i was doing something wrong by reading it yeah i i i kind of like that vibe you know i like a book that sort of feels dangerous and unsettling in that way i can't in good conscience recommend it because it is incredibly graphic at times and you might unleash some sort of you know ancient demonic force while reading it i don't know that's what it felt like (laughs) but what what i liked about it is that speaking of things thematically he is very specifically referencing like babylonian gods like ancient religious beliefs pre-christian religious beliefs ancient mythology and 
the main character, Nameless, you know, the point in the book is that he is he loses himself and he's convinced that he's God. And there's a point in the book where, you know, Morrison has this great and sort of Morrisonian statement like, oh, the, the being that we call God is actually this insane criminal that's been chained in the center of the earth for 65 million years. You know, that's a very Grant Morrison sort of sentence. So the you you end up realizing at the end of the book, or I what, what I realized was that the main female character in the book was that Nameless's twin, and then the book ends with him, her murdering Nameless, who believed he was God. So that's where you get the idea of female empowerment, where it is this sort of feminine aspect of reality taking over the sort of destructive, malignant, insane, uh, masculine aspect embodied in Nameless. At least that's my charitable reading of the ending of the book. I did not get that at all. I was <laughs> okay. like, who is this chick in the veil? She's got a thing on her face. I don't know what's going on. I'm really upset. I like I don't understand any of this. Sure. So I'm well, glad that yeah. you, I'm glad that with rereading it that you were able to appreciate it more fully than as as singles cuz I think I I did read the first few singles of this. Okay. Because yeah. it was so hyped. And I, because I do remember at least the first issue, and again, just being like, I don't think this is for me. This is really <laughs> gross and creepy. Yeah. But also that feeling of, but like waiting a month or so between issues, it's just, it's too much time. It's too disjointed. But like reading it as a whole is probably more effective if it is the kind of content that you're into. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think rereading it, revisiting it, it gave me a new appreciation for it. And again, I think my my continuing sort of defense of Grant Morrison's, I think it's his structure, his narrative structure is what I find appealing and the most interesting thing about his book. And being able to see that in a sort of sitting down and reading it in a solid chunk made me appreciate it. And, you know, the short, the short of... Um, the elevator pitch is that it's basically a Scottish version of John Constantine in space. And then the movie event horizon happens. Um, so if that's your thing, you might, might worth, be worth checking out. <laughs> that, that's a really <laughs> accurate description. Uh, while we're on the subject of the creepy and occult, I think that's a good segue to Batman Gothic. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is the one I was really curious about. Cause you had mentioned early on that, the one Grant Morrison book you had sort of liked was his his Arkham Asylum book that he did back in 89, The Batman Story. Was that back in 89? Yeah, see, wow. this is the thing. So that's the thing. That was the first sort of like graphic novel, Batman graphic novel to come out after Tim Burton's Batman. So it ended up selling like a million copies. Oh, wow. <laughs> so imagine people going to see Tim Burton's Batman, like, oh, I want more of that character. And then they buy Arkham Asylum. Yeah, they must have been pretty nope. disappointed. Yeah, that was Arkham Asylum, Serious House on Serious Earth, right? Yep, yep. So it's him. All right, and, I'm um, not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I read that solely because <laughs> it was what a Joker Batman slash fic that I read that I really loved was based off of. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Batman Gothic of the books that you made our reading list of. Mm-hmm. Actually, I liked this one. Yeah. Like. Yeah. genuinely liked this one like this creepy batman is awesome and I, I felt like this story as a whole was like a hellboy story but with less wisecracks okay yeah and it was like arcane and dark and letting the reader connect the dots but like not full-on creepy gross unsettling like <laughs> like nameless like i think that's past my threshold but sure. batman gothic i felt fit with 
the like darker corners of Batman's character where you're like, okay. And they're so the, the general one of this one is um, it's, it's a Batman story and the mob starts getting like picked off one by one. These mob bosses get killed by this guy they say is unkillable. So they solicit Batman's help and Batman's like, "Mm, no, you guys suck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he also like starts investigating because he's a detective and he can't help himself. And he realizes that the, the something really weird is going on and it might be connected to his past and also to a new cathedral that's being opened in Gotham soon. Mm. And the, like the, it all ties together so nicely. And yeah. I, and there, there's like a few plot twists towards the end that I did not see coming and really liked my one huge criticism Mm-hmm. or like not maybe not criticism but the thing that i did not like about this is i i don't think it makes sense that bruce wayne as a young boy was a, like abused or harassed in any way as a child because my reading of batman was always he was like this normal innocent kid until his parents were murdered so like basically anything bad that happens to him before that point i'm like no no that's not appropriate <laughs> i do think that is kind of interesting how morrison made a point of tying the villain into batman's past in a way but the 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 sequences where bruce wayne remembering his childhood feels so dreamlike that's that thing where it's like well maybe a kid is misremembering something or misremembering you know the past and it feels dreamlike and unreal in a way so that is kind of odd to me that the the necessity to kind of tie everything together but I, i'm glad you like this story i think uh in terms of grant morrison's story it is a very straightforward story and i think it speaks to what i was hinting at earlier where Graham Morrison's work in the late 80s, early 90s feels tonally very different from his more recent work where there's a lot of dialogue boxes, there's a lot of description. Um, it's not as sort of broken up narratively. There's a through line you can follow. And all that, without getting too much into his biography, that I think that's stuff that he writes before his alien abduction where he starts and afterwards he starts <laughs> using comics to sort of explain his theory of how time and space work. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's a whole other topic to discuss. Oh boy. Well, we can get into that a little later. <laughs> uh, but I, I like this story a lot because it pretty much is a straightforward Batman story. Unlike Arkham Asylum, which is an attempt to psychoanalyze the character. This I think feels like a conscious effort of Morrison to say, I'm going to write a Batman story where he flies the bat plane and uh, you know, he escapes from a death trap and I love that sequence in the last issue where, like, he's tied on, like, the elaborate Rube Goldberg death trap. And you don't see him escape. He just is out of it. It's like, okay, well, that was easy. And you kind of, like, don't see how he does it. It's beautiful. There um, there were yeah. there were definitely, like, a, a few moments in this book where I was like, oh, you intellectual asshole. Because there's this scene where, uh, like, one of the mob murders happens concurrently with them watching Don Giovanni. And it's happening like during this really intense famous scene where like the the devil is on the stage and i only know that because that's the scene that's used in the second sherlock holmes movie with robert Downey jr (laughs) but like if i'm not an opera goer and i don't have a weird memory for sherlock holmes media like i'm not gonna know that that's the scene that's happening in that opera 
like I'm not going to know that that's that opera. I'm not going to know that it's that that it's that scene, and I'm not going to know how that is a very intentional choice based on what happens later in the book. So I was like, "Oh, you clever bastard!" But how dare you like alienate most of your audience? <laughs> well, it's funny because I I didn't know any of that. I, mean, I I know nothing about that opera or why that scene was chosen. I just it felt like an important moment. So I just I think maybe. I'm I'm a sympathetic enough reader at times to kind of say, like, if I don't understand it, that's kind of fine, you know? Yeah. I just thought I was like, ooh, that's so good. But <laughs> also, like, you, could, you couldn't have had, like, a program in the audience that said Don Giovanni so that people actually, like, even just saying the name of the opera somewhere. Right. Yeah. I think <laughs> you, it does come up at some point, and I can't remember exactly where, but I, I do want to mention my favorite thing about this story I, I like Klaus Janssen's art. I think it is kind of like sort of scratchy and sort of dark in a lot of times, uh, uh, a lot of ways. But my favorite thing about the story is the way Morrison writes the relationship between Alfred and Bruce. And oh, yes. I've never seen anyone else write him exactly that way. Not even in his later Batman stuff does he do it this well, where you uh, Alfred's humor is so dry and he's constantly cutting down Bruce you know, saying like, oh, it's a little late to be going out, isn't it? Or like stuff like that. But there's a moment toward the end of the book where they're eating lunch together. And there's always scenes where Alfred is bringing Batman food in this book. In a lot of Graham Morrison's Batman stories, that must be mean something. But they're eating lunch, eating sandwiches, and Batman is just like going off about how everything's connected and giving basically giving a narrative or an exposition dump to Alfred and Alfred just sort of humoring him. And I got the sense of Alfred as a sort of parental figure to Bruce who's just letting him play out this this power fantasy. Like Batman is Bruce Wayne's way of coping with his parents' death and Alfred just kind of saying like, well, he can't go to a psychiatrist but he can do this and kind of get it off his chest. So I'll just humor him, you know, and I Alfred really love that so relationship. Good. Yeah. It's a really beautiful moment in this story. And I just, I'm, I, I don't think anyone else has ever really captured that relationship in that way that well. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think if you like this story, I mean, I think his, his, his epic seven year Batman run, I think is one of the most amazing achievements in superhero storytelling. Cause it really is a sort of amazing, attempt that Morrison has to fix the character of Batman and give Bruce Wayne a satisfying conclusion to his tragedy. And then over the course of seven years of writing the character, Morrison realizes that Batman's inherently broken and can never be made whole or never be healed. And it ends on such like a weird bummer note. I think it's a really beautiful story. I, unfortunately, it's told over like seven different series, so it's hard to kind of read it all in order, but... It's some really amazing comics in that seven-year Batman run. If you like that character, I cannot recommend that stuff highly enough. I think this the seven years of content thing is a little <laughs> a little daunting. It is a um, yeah. I I did have a few a few more like little notes about Batman Gothic. Oh, sure. Like again, my issues with Morrison's portrayal of women. I felt like aside from something that happens towards the end, which I won't spoil because it's so good, the women in this book are there like inconsequentially and basically only to get raped as shorthand to say this, these dudes are fucked up. And it's just, it's such lazy storytelling. I'm like, dude, you're pulling out all these intellectual references and you can't think of something more creative than that guy raped a woman and therefore he's a bad dude, but like, don't worry about her. That like really upsets me. Um, Like, cause it's, it's like making a, like a casual perpetuation of, 
narratives for violence against women. Yeah. And also yeah. because it's such an overused trope, it's so lazy. I'm like, you're being a misogynist, but you're also being a lazy writer. And both of those things are bad in different ways. <laughs> yeah. And it does. I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I do notice that something is writing whenever time I revisit it. And yeah, I think it, it is unfortunate. And um, it's surprising that someone I think is smart as him doesn't notice that. Um, but the thing you're hinting at toward the end, I mean, it does turn into sort of a, I, I read it as a revenge narrative at the end. I think it's the same character that shows up earlier in the story is the one at I the guess. end. But that doesn't excuse it. But Right. Yeah, right. right. Again, it's like, oh, dude, you're almost there, but you missed the mark and now I'm mad. <laughs> uh, something else I thought was nice, like we said, this is, uh, this book deals with religion and the occult and you do see some inverted cross symbolism. So then... Yeah. I think it's really clever how he had like the mob bosses want to get Batman's help. So their idea is to create a bat signal of their own, but the bat is upside down. Brilliant. It's like the same <laughs> thing. And I like, I, yeah. I realized that literally as I was looking at my notes, I was like, that's what that was. <laughs> so that, that was really clever And that. I'm like, okay, well played. And then my other question was just like me being a brat. I'm like, okay. So Batman's like casually flying the bat plane over to Austria to interview these present day monks, like, did he need a passport, a landing permit? <laughs> like, what are the rules for vigilante, vigilante border crossings? <laughs> I did, isn't there a thing where they, uh, he makes an offhand comment about that? How his, like, his clothing might be a little, like, make him stand out a bit in the monastery? <laughs> like, I think he references that. Just how kind of absurd all that stuff is. So. It's like, it's so dumb. But I'm like, you know what? Cool. Batman can be a jet setter now. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not surprising that Morrison loves the Adam West batman unconditionally and i think as dark of a batman story he writes sometimes that stuff always comes through like that that is this is kind of a tangent maybe but i should have brought it up when we were talking about the nameless but it's fascinating to watch morrison write stuff that's really dark and violent because i think he is inherently an optimist and believes in the power of superheroes to save humanity so sometimes the stuff he writes that is supposed to be horrific and violent comes off it rings false because I think that when he's writing an optimistic story, it feels a lot more true to what he actually thinks. But anyway. Would you consider his Justice League run a little bit more of that optimism? I think so. Definitely. So yeah. on, so we read volume one, and you said this is late 90s, correct? Yeah, this is 97. I definitely remember buying the first issue. I think I read like the first maybe two dozen issues regularly when it was coming out. But I mean, I was 15 at the time. Um, and I've reread it recently since then. It's dated. I mean, I think Howard Porter's art is super dated at times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and you, yeah. Have to, you have to put up with the Electro Superman for a lot of it. Um, that, yeah. I was like, <laughs> man, we're in the 90s because, <laughs> like, one of my notes is, oh, man, Blue Superman. <laughs> <laughs> but but I don't, you know, I, I, I admittedly haven't read the first volume again in a while, but there are moments in his Justice League where you get the big team shot of, like, all seven characters doing something big and cinematic and heroic. And I think that's the stuff Graham Morrison really loves to write is that sort of big action superhero stuff. And I think this book, he kind of nails it. It doesn't really have a lot of the sort of, you know, meta narrative trickery that, you know, Nameless has or some of his other stuff. It kind of feels like just a traditional superhero story to me. I really enjoyed seeing Zariel because mm. that is a character that I read about in the DC Comics Encyclopedia. 
sure. and never actually saw in a book, I don't think. So all of a sudden he showed up and I was like, oh, hey, it's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh, man. So the thing that, re- like, on the whole, I think you're right. This is like a fairly straightforward superhero story. Yeah. But there were some things, and like, on the whole, it's it's pretty inoffensive, but there were a couple things that just made me so angry. Oh, okay. And it's it's I don't think they're specific to Morrison. I think if hmm. any writer, like a lot of my criticisms so far have been kind of specific to him and his writing style, but yeah. these are like if anyone would do these, I would be angry. So like just to, <laughs> just to clarify. So the biggest one that made me the most upset is so it, the Green Lantern in this book is Kyle Rayner. And Kyle Rayner is maybe important is the wrong word, but his is the girlfriend who gets butchered and put in a fridge, which is where Gail Simone coins the term fridging to discuss the, the horrible trope of women, especially in superhero comics, but in other media also getting killed off for the sole purpose of motivating the male character to do something mm-hmm. or to traumatize mm-hmm. them in some way. And again, this goes back to the whole, like that's a super lazy writing thing and it's not helping like create positive narratives like for women or like about men. And cause I'm, cause like, okay, on the one hand, like, yes, you're sent, you're perpetuating violence against women, but also it's kind of, negative for the men too because you're mm-hmm. saying that men can only be motivated by violence and so i think it's insulting to all genders really definitely yeah it's lazy writing anyway so <laughs> so this whole concept of fridging comes from this thing that happened to Kyle Rayner's girlfriend and in one of the panels in this book he fucking makes a joke about his girlfriend being fridged. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You can't do that. This is such poor taste. And I'm like, I realize it's not Kyle doing it. I realize it's Grant Morrison writing Kyle doing it. But I was like, you asshole. That's like, this is the opposite of okay. First Mm -hmm. of all, it's not in character because Kyle is this like sweetie, like softy creative artist dude and would totally be devastated by this happening and would not be joking about it. Right. He would be like really traumatized by it and wouldn't be making offhand comments about like, wow, like supervillains used to just want to take over the world. Now they kill people's girlfriends. I'm like, dude, <laughs> why are you thinking this right now? And- <laughs> do you, I do, but do you kind of maybe read that as Morrison putting away the sort of humorous tone of it maybe, but Morrison always, yeah, I, I think Morrison's always critiquing contemporary comics. Like, he hates dark and gritty comics, even though he writes some of them, but he doesn't like the idea of superheroes being dark and gritty. I think that's the sort of off-hand comments. Like, yeah, I mean, this sort of hyper-violent comic we see in happening in the mid-90s, late-90s, and maybe it's like a rebuttal to that, coached in but a really poor-taste joke. It It was kind of like... If like I see where that may have been the intent, but it did not go far enough right. for okay. me at least into commentary. It was still firmly in a this is a really bad joke. Got it. And yeah. it did not make it into criticism. It like mm-hmm. did not cross that line. And maybe at the time it seemed that way, but now with a little bit like a few more decades of reading comics and learning how to discuss them in a more intellectual framework. I'm like, this is really uncomfortable. This is not what the character would do. This is not what the writer should be doing. Like, I'm just not okay with this. Also like see above my concern at whoever the fuck gave Morrison the ability to write (laughs) wonder woman consistently. Mm -hmm. There's 
a part in the book two parts related to her where I was just like I swear to god whoever greenlit his graphic novel of her it needs to like be fired because <laughs> so one was uh like she does this really awesome thing in this fight scene and the dudes are just talking about how great her ass looks and I'm like cool she just saved your lives but yeah whatever let's talk about how aesthetically pleasing she is to you mm-hmm. and this other part where they're they're holding a recruiting drive to get new members for the justice league and wonder woman's like boy it sure would be nice if we had more women around here huh and then they don't do anything about it i'm like guys you can't again this is like morrison i see what you're trying to do but just because you say something you should do something doesn't mean it's the same as actually doing it like you know there are not women in the justice league fill up that roster with women dude you're the writer you have that power yeah i mean yeah exactly he creates characters for this story he creates zerial he creates aztec for this series he could have easily created another female character or several more so yeah i'm like i'm like recognizing that there's a problem is not the same as solving it like if you see the problem like recognizing it is just the first step like do Mm -hmm. something about it all of that said I also I see why Morrison wrote Batman forever because he gets him he gets him so well and that shines really brightly in this Justice League book like yeah Yeah. so you get I mean it's interesting that you read I think Gothic is very much Morrison doing a sort of traditional Batman story by the time he gets to JLA and his Batman run he's sort of like rethought the character so this is the JLA run is where we get the the birth of the sort of hyper superhuman strategist Batman where he can solve any problem, right? That's his superpowers being able to solve any problem being the ultimate strategist. They, and they did do a little bit of the exploring how Batman can be part of the justice league when every other member is super powered right. and can do these incredible physical feats. And everyone's like, well, you're just a dude. And he's like <laughs> the best dude. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed uh, my favorite Batman moment in this volume was when it was, I think one of the bonus stories where they're debating whether or not blue Superman should be allowed mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. justice league. Cause they're not really sure if he's Superman <laughs> right. and like without even turning around from like the microscope, he's looking through Batman's like, it's Superman. He's in, why are we having this conversation? <laughs> there is no conversation. It's Superman. And I'm like, Batman is the most like paranoid freak on the planet. And for him to be like, so immediately trusting of Superman is like really adorable, but also so <laughs> in character. Cause they've done so much together. Like, of course he implicitly trusts Superman. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's really interesting. I kind of forgot that moment, but I think this is where you get Morrison sort of reinventing Batman in a really interesting way. And it's sort of the joke about Batman being able to do anything just because he's rich and really smart. That I think that comes from this this version of Batman. And I like the idea of that. I see that. I like the idea of Morrison being attuned to Batman because Batman is a character that kind of has gone through innumerable different versions. So more a character where you have you know, the Michael Keaton Batman, you have the, the Adam West Batman, you have the 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 Batman from the comics from the 30s, you have the modern day Batman. For Morrison, those are all valid interpretations of the character. So I think that's something he really finds interesting, how you could have one character that kind of fits in any type of story and fits in any type of interpretation. I think that's why he's worked so well with that character. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, another character 
that I really liked in this book was Aquaman because <laughs> so like I grew up watching those the Super Friends reruns and obviously mm-hmm. that was like my first exposure to a lot of these characters but then I'm just so so into the Bruce Tim verse Justice League and Justice League Unlimited series <laughs> where it was like Aquaman as I had never seen him he had like a missing hand he had a hook on that hand he had long hair he had a beard he was really gruff and like irritable and just so opposite from all the other versions that I knew <laughs> and when I realized that the comics kind of kept going to back back to like the Super Friends version of Aquaman <laughs> I was like but what about the Justice League dude and that Justice League dude is in Morrison's Justice League of America. And I was yep. so hyped to see yeah. him. But he makes that great that great joke where um I think it's I think it's in this first volume where the they have the first story is like these like other superpowered beings show up and they try to solve all the world's problems and they end up stealing like a bunch of water from the ocean to irrigate the Saharan desert. And Aquaman's in the Just League uh, moon base. He kind of says like, oh yeah, they just stole like 500 million gallons of this Pacific Ocean. I know that because a tuna told me, don't ask. <laughs> like it's like the, the best Aquaman joke. So <laughs> It's just like, you do you Aquaman. It's like, I, I love this type of, they've done like other similar versions of this Aquaman, but the Aquaman who's like a bit of a badass, I really love because I'm like, or like uh you know he's the king of atlantis he's the lord of the seas and it's so easy for the surface dwellers to just write him off as the dude who who talks to fish and i'm like earth is mostly water earth earth is basically all water and this is the dude who's in charge of it you better show him some respect because he's the one who knows what's up yeah exactly exactly so my question to you then is as a noted dc fan do you find that Morrison's interpretation of the character, given this is this is particularly the late '90s versions of the characters, does it so ring 90s. true? I mean, do 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 you, I think he's a. I think there are certain writers who fit the aesthetic of one of the big two universes really well. Morrison's Marvel work has never quite clicked for me, but I think he's so in tune with DC, and I just think he understands the inherent optimism of most of these characters. Did you get that similar sense from reading that stuff? I don't think it's the optimism. I think it's his kind of underlying obsession with divine forces and the powers that shape this world. Because the thing that really separates DC from Marvel that DC kind of hates about itself. (laughs) (laughs) I get this feeling that DC like really hates what it is in a lot of its work. But the thing is that the DC characters are basically gods. And they can do these incredible things. Whereas Marvel characters are defined by their flaws DC superheroes are kind of defined by their lack of them. And so I think that Morrison does DC characters well because he is so obsessed with those ideas of power and divinity and what you do when you have such like intense influence around the immediate world around you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's I've never, I didn't think about it in that sense. Yeah. That does ring true then for me. Yeah. Oh, like, like that said, having just read this <laughs> first Justice League volume, I think he does that very well for the male characters. I think oh, right. his portrayal, there's only, there's really only like one or two women in his entire first volume of Justice League that have any significant number of lines. And I think he could have done better. Definitely. So like, I think yeah. he can write men. I just think that he keeps forgetting that women are people too, <laughs> which is yeah. like alarming yeah. from such a smart dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I, I do think that's true. I think it, it might be an age thing. You know, he's what probably in his you know, early to mid fifties at this point, and just that generation might not be as aware of it. But again, as someone I think is very clever and attuned to pop culture trends, like Morrison, it is alarming that he still falls into that trap over and over again. Yeah, yeah. there. The I think the female character of these books that we read that felt the realest was actually the doctor in we three yes which is the the last book that we have to really talk about in an in-depth way today and uh that is one where you put it on the list and i had just never heard of it before Mm -hmm. and had no idea what i was getting into and it's another book that really upset me (laughs) but (laughs) i thought it was but i could also kind of step back and appreciate how cool it was yeah so the basic premise of we three is there are there's a secret government facility that is experimenting with turning animals into war machines and this like female doctor is the kind of like the head of this program but not the top person so she's not totally in charge but she's the one working closest with the animals and even though she didn't have a lot of lines like no one really had a lot of lines right and so, yeah. and i felt like i could still get a sense of who she was more so than the other characters. So this was like the one example where I was like, okay, maybe you're not the worst at writing women. <laughs> but <laughs> she, yeah. of, of the of the human characters in the book, she's the only one that has any semblance of like empathy or, yeah. you know, or understanding. Um, I really like this book. This is Grant Morrison with uh, Frank Quitely on art, the same artist that did All-Star Superman. And I think they, maybe because they're both Scottish and have known each other for a long time, but they have such a similar approach to comic book storytelling that they just, it's almost like you're reading the comics and you think that they're just one mind making the comics. You know, there's not that sort of division of labor where it's more so writing and quietly drawing it. Specifically in this book, because I, I, the reason I like this book so much is, again, that theme of him trying to use comics to make you think differently. And this book, large chunks of this book are attempts to show how the animals experience time and space. So a lot of the page layouts and and action sequences are done in these really inventive ways that are not the standard comic book panel layout. They're attempts to show how a, a cat sees motion, right? And moves through motion. And I think that's the whole point of this book is Morrison is a noted animal rights activist. Large chunk of his Animal Man run from the 80s is explicitly about vegetarianism and, and, and animal rights. And this book is an attempt to do a story that explores what it means to be an animal without necessarily anthropomorphizing the animal characters. And that's why I like it so much. The spreads in this book, like you said, are like actually incredible. Like Even if I hated yeah. the the thing that was happening in the plot <laughs> i was just so mesmerized by the spreads because there are these double page spreads again like you said just kind of showing you the perspective from the animals but like mm-hmm. multiple perspectives yeah. and instead of looking at a storyboard for a film it was more like looking at a collage or like a mood board but like a really twisted mood board <laughs> yeah 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 i mean so you have like the 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 cat character is the most violent of the animals and there's a scene where it's basically you know eviscerating these soldiers that are trying to stop these animals from escaping and it's incredibly graphic um but yeah it's, it's told in this way where it's almost like a 3d projection at times panels on top of panels on top of panels so it is trying to emulate like how 
a cat or an animal would move through the world as opposed to a human, how we understand the world. I think, you know, as someone that reads a lot of comics, I find myself thinking about time and motion in terms of panels, and this totally shattered that way of thinking for me. I really liked what he was doing with the dialogue for the animals. So these animals are, it's a, it's a cat, a dog and a rabbit, and they're hooked in to these large metal, like mechanized suits. And they apparently have some kind of voice translator so that the animals can speak like a very rudimentary form of English so that they can communicate with the woman who is training them. And I think I didn't, I wasn't bothered by Morrison's writing in this book because it was just so different from the rest of his writing by design. Yeah, yeah. And I thought yeah. that the the interpretation for how the animals might have been processing, it's like animals processing the world the way they're processing it, and then how might that be translated into English, but like a super basic form of English where not all of the grammar and syntax are in place. Yeah, exactly. I think that's... That's every time I reread this book, I sort of notice different aspects of that where it is an attempt to do a sympathetic take on an animal without necessarily having it talk or think like a human being. And I, I think that's a really, really clever way of discussing the larger issues of animal rights, of, of empathy, what it means to be human. Um, I think that a lot of that stuff going on in this book, but it's not written in a way where that's a super heavy element. I think it's, it's kind of like an action book. It's kind of like a very hyper-violent version of Homeward Bound. <laughs> but <laughs> but I think you can enjoy it. But I think rereading it, I gain more insight into the larger themes I think Morrison is interested in. But I don't think that's essential to understanding or enjoying the book. I, for for people who have not read this book, if you love pets, I don't <laughs> think you should read this. I mean, well, they, I think this yeah. is a really yeah. fascinating concept, but it's not something I would have read unprompted. Okay, like no, sure. if I if I knew what it was going in because there is just so much violence in it, and if mm-hmm. you don't like seeing violence against animals, just don't go near it. Um, wait, so so super spoilers for a minute, but Paul, since you clearly have a a way about you where you can figure out what Morrison is trying to end <laughs> with, whereas I have no idea, can you please tell me the homeless guy? Is that mm-hmm. the dude at the end who's sitting on the steps with the pets? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because I thought so, but I wasn't sure because it looked like maybe someone else was with the pets almost towards okay. the end. And I got really confused for a minute and I was like, well, well, Paul will know, so I'll just wait. <laughs> so you have, yeah, again, it's this book that I think it operates not on a sort of straight linear narrative where you kind of have to put these things together where there's a point in the early in the story where the animals are run into a homeless man who kind of covers for them. The soldiers show up and say, where have you seen these animals? And the guy's like, no, he actually says like, screw you fascist assholes or something like that. <laughs> and, like, and then later on in the book, you, the last page, you kind of see the animals who had escaped being sort of, taken care of by this homeless man. And I assume it, I assumed it was the same character. You also had one of the main scientists who they had hinted at, I think had a romantic relationship with the female scientist sort of realizing the error in his ways and gives the homeless guy like a, like a couple hundred dollars to take care of these animals that he recognizes. So the ending is like a really touching ending. I didn't get that at all. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the lesson here is you have to reread Morrison books, right? 
but I don't want to. Like the <laughs> the only one that we read here that I would want to reread is Batman Gothic. Interesting. Okay, so maybe we can kind of you know uh, we've been talking for a while, so we kind of wrap up with some things because I, personally, I could talk about Morrison forever, but it's interesting to encounter uh, a very different take on his stuff. Even though I think we both in we can both see what he's doing right and give a somewhat charitable reading it's interesting just how it works for me and the exact same things don't work for you i just find that really fascinating how a writer can have such different reactions but that's also art art you mm-hmm. know you hear all the time art is subjective yeah. but it really is true because you're coming into each piece of art whether it is a painting in a museum or a comic book or a TV show or a film or a piece of graffiti, you are looking at that piece of art with your own perspective and your own baggage and your own opinions. So as we've very clearly illustrated in this episode, (laughs) we're looking at the same thing and we see sort of the same things, but we have wildly different reactions to it. It is kind of a shame. I think that we didn't get a chance to discuss Flex Mentallo, which is, I think, sort of the, if you want a sort of Cliff Notes version of what I find interesting about Graham Morrison, that is the sort of Forrester miniseries to look at. It spins out of his Doom Patrol book, but it does all the things I like about Graham Morrison um, in a very short, concise way. And it does end with him basically saying that the idea of the superhero will liberate and save humanity, which I think is such a beautiful idea. Um, if you want to go further, I would recommend, obviously, his Doom Patrol, because I think that stuff that's written around the same time as Gothic, so has a similar tone and style, and it is a book where I think he's play, he's exploring ideas of identity and gender and um, uh, transgender identity in really interesting ways, using a lot of obscure DC characters. So that might be something that might uh, scratch your itch for Morrison. I was talking about this episode earlier with some of my coworkers and one of them was kind of familiar with Morrison's work. And he was like, yeah, it's kind of like he's trying to be Alan Moore, but doesn't quite get there. And I'm like, I I don't know if that's quite it, but yeah, they're, they're kind of on that similar, uh, like super intellectual, trying to do a lot of things in each story, definitely going in with a clear vision kind of thing. I think there that is a huge can of worms that's for another discussion. There, there, <laughs> I know, I, a, I'm sorry to break there, that out at the end. I just not. remembered it. I will say there is a very historic um, acrimony between those two where Morrison very early in his career was trying to emulate Alan Moore and then very quickly realized that that's not going to work. And he oftentimes presents or does work that I think is an antithesis and an intentional antithesis to Alan Moore's writing. There are times where he he mocks it in Doom Patrol. He has a character that is essentially uh, John Constantine and a parody oh. of John Constantine. Um, I think he is referenced. A lot of his references are done in a way to sort of point out how silly it is to reference uh, literature and stuff in comic books. Um, I think Grant Morrison loves superheroes in the way that Alan, for the reasons Alan Moore doesn't like superheroes. Right. I do. I do agree with that. And I, I might have to find the article to share with you. I did a few years ago find a really fascinating article someone wrote that proposed that poses that 
Alan Moore and Grant Morrison have are dueling wizards who have been doing wizard battle in their comics against each other <laughs> for the past two decades. Oh wow! And if that doesn't find sound that. appealing, if that doesn't sound appealing to you, I don't know how to help you. Like that's the I, kind don't, of stuff I don't know I how to help you either. I, I would love that. <laughs> Please find that and put it on Twitter so everyone can read it. Absolutely. So. I, I don't know if I convinced you to like Grant Morrison, but I don't know if I wanted to. I wanted to present the things I found interesting. And Kara, I want to thank you for illuminating some some issues with Morrison's writing that maybe were I was blind to as a as a fan. I think that in reading the choices that you gave me to read, I ended up hating him more. But I also <laughs> had there as opposed to it feeling like an irrational thing. I feel like now I have the material to back up my opinion. <laughs> But okay. that said, like through our conversation, I, I, it is clear, as we said, that we see similar things. We just have different reactions to it. So I'm really glad that you took the time to have a conversation about it with <laughs> me, course. as opposed to just saying you're wrong and leaving to get that. <laughs> yeah, no one wants that. So I guess, <laughs> I guess the lesson here is that sometimes you should read things that are out of your comfort zone and, uh, yes. you know, yes, and uh, have a friend to discuss them with. It always helps. Yep. Talking about comics is as fun as reading them. Exactly. 